welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Valentine. It's been so long, I've missed you all. This week, we get to share with you one of the panels from this year's International Buddhist Recovery Summit. For those that did not make it, I'm really glad to be able to share with you this panel right now. We had such a wonderful representation of Buddhist recovery groups from all around the world at the summit. It was intense, and there were some challenges, but it was also a gathering of healing community and connection. I personally feel much more connected to the greater Buddhist recovery family now. I'll be taking to heart some of the big questions that were discussed at the conference, but I'll also be taking part, uh, taking to heart some of the many little moments, the brief conversations and spontaneous insights people shared throughout the weekend. Thank you so much to everyone who was there and participated. Oh, we ended up giving away so many scholarships that the event cost us more money than we made, um, but it was it was worth it. So if you do receive benefit from listening to this panel discussion or from the podcast in general, we do offer the option of giving Donna or donation to help our little nonprofit keep supporting Buddhist recovery communities around the world. You can visit BuddhistRecovery.org forward slash donate. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's get to the good stuff. We are gathered here this afternoon. It sounds like a wedding or something, you know, <laughs> to talk about Sangha safety. And in some ways, this is a continuation of the earlier conversations we've had. I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of what we're going to be doing this afternoon. I'm going to introduce these fine people who are the uh, panelists who are going to be uh, doing a lot of the conversation, but you are as well, because we're going to be looking at these questions, and I'm going to read each one of them, and we're going to find out if other people have questions they'd like to add to this as well. It's going to be a little bit preform in that we'll look at each question, the panelists will say their thoughts about each question, and then after they speak on each question, you'll have a chance to speak up as well. And then, after that, we will have the opportunity to divide up in small groups of probably about eight or so people. And each of us and the members on the board will facil help facilitate or at least help you work with what are you taking back around sa uh, Sangha safety and the methods that can be used. And we talked about some of those this morning. And uh, ideally, we, would, we, we allocated three hours for this. I think it's really important to take a break halfway through, and I'd really hope that we don't do three hours. I think that's a long time. It's the afternoon. We all want to take naps, and this room is going to get warm. So I have uh, one request. I would like to have somebody be willing to be a timekeeper. 
Hi, Robin, thank you so much. Do you need to have a Fitbit or a computer? Oh, perfect, okay. And um, what we're going to do is give the panelists about 10 minutes to talk about each of the questions total, and then you'll have a chance to ask about or comment about each question. And if we need to write things down that you want to have written down for us to think about later, or doing your small group conversations, uh, we'll have that. And Amanda is going to be willing to write things down because I'm left-handed, he's left-handed, and we do not have good handwriting. It is illegible. At least that's my excuse. So very briefly, I, other than the name Alex, you didn't hear very much about me last night other than treasurer. I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister. I specialize in transitions ministry, which means essentially helping congregations deal with trauma. And some of the things that we've talked about are pretty familiar to me in my work for the last 25 years. And I'm currently in Meadville, Pennsylvania. I was in West Seattle the last three years, and I've been all over the United States. And this topic generally around misconduct and creating a container for safe community is very, very important always, but it's very important in my denomination because it's happened a lot here too. Before we get started, I'm gonna move introductions. Uh, I'd like us to do a short time of quiet just to get settled in, just to feel your body in these very comfortable chairs and taking into account everyone around you. You can close your eyes if you want and feel this presence of people around you. And consider that our heartbeat, our pulse, our heartbeat. When we're in a room together, it becomes a hum that if we were to able to hear our heartbeats all together, it would be a hum. And imagine all of us together in this space, safe, pioneers, people in recovery. And every one of us here filled with courage. And try to hold on to that word courage if you can. And we'll take a short time of quiet.
So first, let me do the introductions of these fine people who you will be hearing from this afternoon. Jean Teller, you can raise, okay, you raise your hand higher than that. There you go. <laughs> this is my only time to be bossy in my life. So this is uh, Jean's um, little bio that she sent to me to read. Jean Teller is a member of the transition team for the nonprofit organization Recovery Dharma. She has been a practicing Buddhist for 10 years until recently affiliated with the Against the Stream community. She has longtime sub substance abuse recovery, originally in a 12-step program, and more recently with Refuge Recovery and Recovery Dharma. Jean and her partner, Anna Long, live in Portland, Oregon. Jean is also a nationally recognized consultant in organizational development and systems transformation. Spending decades working with and on behalf of a significantly marginalized groups of people, she is especially dedicated to facilitating groups oriented towards helping people identify their goals and have a powerful voice in self-governance. Jean graduated from Southern Illinois University has a master's degree in public policy from the University of Massachusetts. Her academic work includes executive sessions at the uh, Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, as well as Harvard Business School. Thank you for being here. Brian Dean Williams, raise your hand, there you go. Bio. Brian Dean Williams is a Buddhist therapist and teacher who lives, works, and plays as a settler on the unceded traditional territories of the Muskegon and uh, Squamish. Is that pretty great? And then the last one you can say it again. Say it again. Slayer with two. Uh, AKA in uh, British, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. He lives with his partner, three kids, and a puppy. Brian has a 25 year history with social justice movements and has identified as a Buddhist for 18 years. He has an active uh, psychotherapy uh, practice in downtown Vancouver, where he supports folks to overcome trauma, addictions, and mental health challenges. Many of his clients are from the Buddhist community, and most are in the recovery process, just as he is. Brian has supported both people who have survived violence and those who have perpetrated and has found ways to invite people who have perpetrated into responsibility. He brings a feminist lens to this work. Brian also travels widely, widely and teaches in nonprofit organizations and corporations on topics that include trauma-informed practice, narrative therapy, and mindfulness. Welcome, Brian. Sue Newfield Ellis, raise your hand. Thank you. Sue Newfield Ellis is a licensed uh, mental health counselor, a certified sex addiction and chemical dependency therapist, and an RN. She has been practicing since 1981. She specializes in sex relationship addiction and teaching mindfulness meditation. She is faculty at the International Institute of, for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. She is co-author of the book Clergy Sexual Misconduct, and produced the CD Serenity Through Meditation with musician Steve Halpin. 
She currently works part-time at Cohere, Cohere BCS, an agency in Bellevue, Washington, teaching mindfulness meditation practices. She still teaches therapists and clients nationally and internationally and travels with her husband, and as I understand, around the world. Wonderful. Welcome, Sue. And then finally, last but not least, Jeremy Lowry. Jeremy is a project manager for the Healthy Buddhist Communities Program at um, Himera Foundation, which is based in Boulder, Colorado. The Healthy Buddhist Communities Program was launched this year and seeks to identify and promote good organizational and leadership practices that create safe environments for contemplative petitioners on retreat and in community life. Jeremy was the leader of the team that researched abuse in Buddhist and other religious communities as part of the development program. Before coming to Himera, Jeremy worked for almost 20 years as an administrator and adjunct faculty member at Naropa University. He earned a master's degree in Buddhist studies from Naropa, and after two decades in Boulder, he is currently he recently moved with his partner to Alaska, where he lives in the woods outside Anchorage on a small hobby farm, caring for dogs and other animals when he's not working for Hemera. Welcome, Jeremy. It's nice to have you here. So, Sue, would you like to do a little bit of uh, ground rules, please? I also wanted to add, too, that I've studied many religions under many teachers around the world, but I identify the most in the heart with Tibetan Buddhism, so I wanted to say that. So we heard the ground rules that um, John shared with us today, so I'm going to go over those really quick, and then I'd like to add some that we talked about. And uh, so the first one, again, was confidentiality. Two was safe space and healing. Three was taking responsibility of our own sharing. Four is no romantic sexual relationship. Intimacy, have intimacy in, in relationship without that. So I don't know about that one, but I thought I'd add it. Uh, <laughs> and then five is right use of power. So then the ones that we thought would be uh, good to add to this session, because you know, the, uh, one of the purposes of us being here and today on the panel is to have a, a safe space. And so, you know, everyone, in my opinion, has been really respectful, and, and that's great. Um, but we thought we would just add these because, you know, these are really hot topics, and we're going to be talking a lot of, about a lot of stuff that can trigger people. And so we thought we just might add this to the mix as well. And that is, um, <clears throat> again, today and this weekend is safety. And so we want this event to be as safe as possible for people. So as we know, in many 12-step groups, we ask people to not cross-talk for the safety of the group. So more precisely, what we talk about with that is cross-talk usually means telling another person what to think, how to act, um, and then also speaking directly to that person about their share instead of the larger group commenting on the share. It's certainly okay to do that, but not to directly talk to someone about their share and then not questioning or interrupting the person who's currently talking or giving direct advice to other people who have already spoken. The idea is for people to speak about their own feelings and experiences and what's coming up for them and to accept what other people say, not that you agree with it, but because what they're saying is their experience and is true for them. 
So if during this panel or at any time during the retreat, you feel emotionally triggered, please feel free to take a break or leave. We want you to come back and just make sure you take really good care of yourself. Thank you. Any questions so far? Okay. So Jean had come up with eight questions. And I think what I'll do is I'm going to read them. And I'm just going to ask if there's any clarification that is needed for anyone. And I know Jean will be happy to answer that, I hope. Why not? And, um, and then if you have other questions that we didn't think of, we'll add them. OK? All right. Question one. What does safety mean in a recovery or Buddhist community? As I said, we'll be looking at each of these questions in turn. Second one, can we as a community guarantee safety? Third, how do we as a community respond to when people feel unsafe? And really, I think we've been modeling, trying to model all these questions this weekend. Four, how do we as a community set an intention for safety? Five, give local examples of supporting safe space. Six, what does safe space look like in the online community? Seven, how do recovery communities conduct inventories of themselves? Is that happening in the Buddhist recovery world? And number eight, what constitutes an outside issue when a teacher has been found to have acted in a manner inconsistent with the fifth precept about sexuality? Now, does anyone want clarification of any of those questions? Or are there any questions that we haven't thought of? OK. It'll probably come up that you will have other things you want to bring up. And Amanda's willing to write things down if we want to write them down for future reference. And also, when you get into small groups, you'll be talking about some of this. OK. So question one, and I'm just going to have the panelists speak up, and then you will. What does safety mean in a recovery or a Buddhist community? Which of the panelists would like to start first? of the panel would like to go first. I do not want to volunteer anyone. Check, check. Is it on? Oh, okay. Oh, it's because I'm behind the speakers, of course. Yeah, um, so I would say, um, what does safety mean in a recovery or Buddhist community? I would, I would start with uh, the ability to heal in a shared space that's free from oppression.
accountability that there's a that there's awareness um, when there is awareness that people hold each other accountable well um, part of what I'll be doing today is sharing what we already know from the Christian and the um, Catholic and, and Protestant communities and so um, there's not that much research there's like 24 articles and then the book I'm in which I'll share with you too but what I'd like to say in regards to that um, is that we t we've heard talked a little bit about accountability and what the communities have found the clergy and the Christian communities is accountability is essential like in 12-step, yeah, you have, you know, you have, you know, supposed to have trusted servants. They do not govern. But when you have teachers and you have monks and, you know, you have priests and whatever, um, that power differential overall is in a different place. So I like to call it uh, accountability with compassion. And what we found in the Christian communities is that you need to have an infrastructure you need oversight and infrastructure. Now, I know that's hard if you don't have a lot of money. Um, I know it's hard if people don't want to do that, but I'm just telling you what's worked over time for them. And usually an oversight committee would be safe people within the Sangha or the community that were teachers or therapists or uh, attorneys, or and that would be the oversight. And there needs to be ethical uh, procedures, codes, there needs to be uh, consequences for what's going to happen if something does occur. Um, and again, there has to be um, uh, accountability. And, uh, and what, what I know what the Christians are doing now, some of them, the Christian community, they're actually getting people assessed by a certified sex addiction therapist that's not associated with their congregation, okay? And then they get a, a, an assessment of the person, and then they recommend treatment procedures. So that's the way they have be, been beginning to include, we talked a little bit today about inclusion, of including the person that has done the sexual misconduct. And I know that's a hot subject, but, but that's what they're starting to do is to, to reinstate. And this person has to go up with, with senior leaders, teachers, the board, and they have to be held accountable for their treatment and some of them take polygraphs. I know that sounds like a really tall order, but I'm just sharing with you what they have learned over the years the hard way. Um, so, the, yes, okay. Uh, the approach that we've taken at Himera as we've researched this question of safety and safer Buddhist communities is to acknowledge that there's going to be differences between different communities in what constitutes safety and how safety is talked about. But those differences shouldn't mean that it isn't clear in a particular community what the agreements are around safety so that the students can make an intentional choice about whether they're entering a community that feels right for them. I think very often there are a lot of assumptions baked into people's idea of safety. And when we assume, um, what happens is people bring in things from their own past. They bring them into, and this is both teachers and students, they bring them in in contact uh, with a tradition 
that um, you know is understood in different ways by different people, and it creates a situation where, with all of our assumptions, um, there actually is no safety. We're just waiting to find the place where we actually don't agree with the other. So what, what we're really uh, promoting at Hamera is having discussions and then having a culture built around an agreement about what safety is. So safety is about intention and about clarity. I just want to add, and I'm going to speak from my own experience, if that's OK. Also, is there anybody else that's like kind of blown by their fluorescent lights, or is that my cross to bear? OK, can we possibly be in a more of a twilight experience? Would people mind? You cannot fall asleep, Joel. I see you. <laughs> Can we live with this, or is it difficult? All right. Okay. And we're going to, Elizabeth's going to figure out the middle way. Great. Okay. Lovely. Okay. So, I, you know, in addition to the sort of cool things and the sort of cultural accountability and what y'all have been describing, I would also offer that there's a, my, my take on some of what happened at Against the Stream, for example, was that, that the people that were responsible for holding uh, Noah Levine accountable were also very much uh, uh, paid to uh, keep Noah in good standing in his community. Um, they were working for or had some kind of fiscal connection to Against the Stream. And so, uh, or certainly several of them were. They had been empowered by NOAA and so forth and so on. So um, I think there is another piece of this, which is, and really, if you looked at Against the Stream's policies of accountability, they were very strong, and NOAA helped write those policies. And the other piece of this is the execution of the policies and who does that, and do they have a financial relationship to, or are they a financial benefactor of uh, the person who's being looked at. I just want to say something really quick. The one thing I can say about the Catholic communities, because when we did our book and our research, we went to the Catholic communities and wanted to know if they wanted to be involved in this or if they wanted, and they said no, they did not, that they would take care of things themselves. So what I want to say about that is that what, uh, to piggyback on what Jean's saying, is that uh, with, with arch, archbishops and people in the hierarchy, they cannot be the ones to be, oh, we've seen what's happened with when they oversee the priests. All they do in a lot of cases, not all, they move them around, you know, and they abuse people for years. So that's the only thing I can share about the Catholics. Um, first, I really want to, one of the things that we discovered as we've sort of researched at Hamera is that I think there's a major problem in many Buddhist communities around board independence. A lot of boards are full of students of the teacher. And these are people who may seek to be authorized as teachers themselves by that teacher. Basically, 
the question is, is the board actually independent? And it isn't always just a fiscal issue. Um, the other thing I want to say um, is about culture, because you, you can look at organizations that have had scandals and find now that some of them have wonderful ethical policies that you could put on a website and they would look really wonderful and other organizations could and probably have copied them. But I think we also have to look at um, how are decisions made in the organization, what's happening informally in the culture that is um, undermining the ability of the community to tell the truth and not be keeping family secrets about what's actually going on. What time? 30 seconds? Does anybody have any quick questions or comments to address to anybody on the panel? I could bring the microphone. So I guess my question is about most of the things you've spoken about to date are about sort of leadership positions in, in my support community has very little leadership. And, but we still have safety issues. It's around our peers um, or you know somebody who occasionally leads a meeting and when they are not acting appropriately. Um, so thoughts on that or, or how to address it. I have some of my own, but I'd rather hear y'all's. I have one time for one more quick question or comment before we go on to question two. Okay. Cayenne. I'm, I'm Cayenne. Uh, I take uh, AA into the Purdy Women's Prison in uh, Purdy, Washington. It's the state-run uh, prison. And we have something called PRIA. I have to take a course every year to get recertified to go into the prison and it's all about rape prevention and it's all about teaching the volunteers how not to get into trouble with the inmates and it's very good information and I would like to see perhaps something like that uh, where where the people who are like you said the teachers that they have to take this recertify uh, some periodically so that they are kept in mind that uh, these are the things that are okay these are the things that are not and that every um, incident will be investigated regardless of who did it or who didn't thank you all right if we could go on to question two and you can be if you can be uh, we address these questions when we have the small group conversations. And by the hmm? Sure. Oh, sure. Duh. So anybody have any responses to any of these questions? Um, um. Sorry, I got a short people thing going on. That's why I stand up. Um, um, we actually, uh, we had an instance in Portland of, um, I think, a, a Gary, you can correct me if I've got the details wrong, but a guy was basically kind of coming on to newcomers for about a year within a meeting, 
yeah, about that. It, and people saw it, right? People saw it for a year. <laughs> you know, it, it'd be in Portland, like nobody really wanted to confront, you know? I don't know if you are familiar with Portland, Oregon culture, but <coughs> we don't confront. Um, um, but finally, that actually led to the formation of a sexual misconduct committee um, that was all about uh, peer-related uh, sexual misconduct. And um, folks got together. They issued a working draft of a document. We held a we held a day-long um, workshop that was attended by 40, 40, 45 people, I would say, extremely well attended. I'm looking at Cliff here also, a Portlander. Didn't mean to offend you about the Portland comment. Um, uh, and uh, that uh, became then a, uh, an allies group. That morphed into an allies group, and actually that's the group that um, uh, folks who are in a difficult situation can come forward to the allies group and uh, ask for assistance. So recently both Gary and I actually, uh, uh, a woman came forward to us and who's been being stalked by a member of our Sangha for I think about a year and a half now. Um, and so we're, we have been talking with her and helping her strategize on you know, how to get some assistance with this. So yeah, so that sort of the dependence on the group to come together and solve the problems together. Um, one thing that I've heard a lot as I've interviewed people and looked at what's going on in the field is that the whole community actually has to be trained. There's, there's developing a set of policies, um, but really everybody needs to know what those policies are. They need to have a sense of the view behind them. There needs to be an open conversation about the culture in the organization. Um, and some of this can look like just very prosaic training. I know that uh, in, in some Catholic archdiocese, and I think also in Shambhala, they've invited the district attorney and the um, uh, and victims uh, victims advocates to come in and do a training on what are the laws and what are your resources if there is misconduct or violence occurring. So really education is not just for the teachers, it's for the whole community. And I'd like to second that too as far as um, what some of the Christian communities have done. You know, they t the research shows that there's hardly any talk about sexuality and that uh, healthy sexuality is something that we all are as human beings. And so I know a lot of the congregations now are getting research and they're, they're, you know, they're having classes for children that are age appropriate, adolescents, adults, and talking a lot more openly about what sexuality is, you know, what's safe, what's not, and what's healthy in the research. So just like you're saying about the education uh, about that. And I'll just add parenthetically, and this is really a kind of a weird part of this for us. We have about 22, we had 22 or so refuge recovery meetings in Portland, so it's a lot of meetings. And all but two of our meetings are now recovery dharma, and the two that are not, uh, that was, uh, that did not transition, that became affiliated with Refuge Recovery World Service, are uh, the two where this particular man, who's been frankly stalking this woman, are most, that's where he is most involved. And I mean, you gotta just like look at that and kind of go, wow, what is that, you know? Like, I don't have an answer to what is that, but it definitely, 
the the irony was pretty hard to escape, unfortunately. I just have a comment about that the the Catholic Church, and in this situation, I don't understand why the police are not involved. So, especially the Catholic Church, there's been many many incidences where it's all handled internally instead of reporting it to the police. So I'm going to make a little bit of an executive decision here because I'm treasurer. Uh, we're going to take a break in a half an hour at 10 after. And so we'll just be mindful of that. I don't want to rush through these questions because if any particular question has a lot that's on our minds about it after the panelists speak, what I'm going to suggest is for each question, the panelists will say what you'd like to say, and then we'll open it up for any questions that you might have for the panelists about that question. Does that make sense to you? And then at 10 after 3, we'll take a break for five minutes or so, then come back and just continue. But I don't want to try to rush through all the questions and really not get anything addressed, because that wouldn't be fair to you or the panel. Is that OK with you folks? OK. Thank you. Question two, can we as a community guarantee safety? So panelists, who would like to go first? Um, I'm not sure if we can guarantee safety. I think we should definitely aspire towards it and work towards it. Um, I guess something that's coming up for me in the moment is something that I learned from my friend and, and mentor, Vicki Reynolds, who's like, she's like a feminist um, author and narrative therapist from Vancouver. And um, one thing I've learned from her is this distinction that's been really helpful for me, um, which is the uh, distinction between feeling unsafe and feeling uncomfortable, right? Because I feel like sometimes in my life, um, I've played like the, I've played a card of like, I feel unsafe when actually what was happening was that I just felt uncomfortable. I d I've done a lot of work with uh, folks struggling with homelessness and severe mental health and addictions. I remember my boss once um, said, you know, can you clean up that vomit on the floor? I was like, oh, I don't feel safe doing that. It was that there was gloves around. Like, I, it was actually just that I didn't feel comfortable doing it, right? Um, you know, I've been in groups with other, uh, you know, cis straight men who, when we're talking about patriarchy and they say, I don't feel safe. Um, that may be true, but it may be that they actually don't feel comfortable, right? And um, feeling uncomfortable is our jam as, uh, as Buddhists, right? If nothing else, mindfulness practice is about learning how to work with discomfort using our practice. So from my perspective, there's going to be moments when we're in Sangha where we bump up against each other and where there's uncomfortable conversations that happen or somebody's behavior that makes us feel uncomfortable. And I think that that's where our practice can really serve us and where we can, um, uh, you know, have generative conversations with each other about that that actually bring us together, right? So I feel like I just, I, I need to be careful myself that I don't emphasize safety to the point where I'm just not willing to feel uncomfortable. So I just, I just wanted to raise that. I'd like to speak to that too. Um, so, so the definition, so um, there's a word that I had to look up. It was called fiduciary. 
uh, fiduciary relationship, and that's really important in this. It's a legal word, but um, there was a couple of uh, Episcopal di uh, churches, or I don't, and I guess that's what you call them, or congregations, where you know they were sued, uh, civil suit and liability suit with attorneys. One was a million two hundred dollars, etc., and they usually go by this term. So this is just to give you just kind of a thumbnail officially about what we're talking about. So fiduciary relationship is when when one of them of in this relationship is under a duty to act for or to give advice for the benefit of another upon matters within the scope of their relationship. And they, all ta they also talk, tack on to that loyalty, care and skill, and good faith. And sometimes, I, I think I saw one thing on the internet, and that's all access I had was a little bit about how, um, I don't know, I, I don't want to get into it, but about how you can have a consensual relationship and that it shouldn't, as long as it's not a student and you're a teacher, that it shouldn't affect, you know, it shouldn't affect or you shouldn't, you know, uh, be alleged that there's sexual misconduct. But uh, according to that, that's not true because I think someone, Amanda said today about a, a power and control issue. And it is not a level playing field. And they will say you have to be fiducious if you're going to be a teacher, a therapist, we're held under, in Washington it's very, very strict. We're not even allowed to have dual relationships. So think about that one. Um, and so I think, I think we just need to know what those terms mean. And also infidelity is any emotional or sexual intimacy that violates trust, okay? And then just one more, sexual harassment can involve any unwanted physical contact exposure, inappropriate comments, or any sexual action that makes you feel uncomfortable. So I, I know what you're saying, Brian, too, but it, it, it also is, you know, a definition of sexual harassment. So that's all I wanted to share. Um, so I, I think the answer is um, we can't guarantee safety as a community. I think that... Um, I think that a community that has good systems in place can um, hopefully swiftly detect predators in its midst. It will have the tools to do that. It can help prevent people from making preventable mistakes. Um, it can reduce the risk of uh, misconduct that comes out of not knowing or not understanding, which I think given the fact that many of our clergy people, although they have very deep and profound training in the tradition, many of them don't have any uh, particular pastoral training. So having good systems in place can really help us um, uh, catch and educate things uh, that could go wrong. But, but we can't guarantee safety, and that's why we have to pay so much attention to these issues, I think. Um, that's why we have to have community conversations. That's why our boards need to be having conversations because it's it's a something that needs a lot of effort. Yeah, I agree. I don't I don't think we can guarantee safety. I think we have to have the intention of safety, and we have to have sort of structures in place where people can go when they feel unsafe, and also policies in place that articulate the intentions. And I think in Refuge, we had 
decent guiding principles and um, the board of Re refuge decided that we actually were going to be held harmless from the guiding principles that we would instead follow the five precepts and and I, I, uh, I know that right now the Recovery Dharma community is saying, no, no, whatever guiding principles that are developed for Recovery Dharma, the board will have to be held to those same guiding principles as part of the intention of the entirety of the organization, which I think is a good, it's good um, to have that in place. Um, yeah, that's what I want to say. Okay, I'm going to open it up for any questions or comments that you folks would like to have for the panelists on this question. I'm just going to very quickly add that in my congregations, we have, we've developed relational covenants. And with the word covenant, meaning promise to take care of each other, but also hold each other's feet to the fire if needed. And that especially includes clergy and other staff, where oftentimes the, the problems arise from. So relational covenants, if they can be enforced, are really, really important in at least my denomination. Does anyone have any questions or comments they'd like to address to the panelists on a guarantee of safety? Thank you. I really appreciate all the uh, wisdom here. Um, it seems that one of the questions is maybe how do we create the conditions for safety? And I hear some of that accountability, safety, um, and that what safety is is that it is a, it's a consensual agreement. Um, and that what is safe for one might not be safe for another. And so that means a relational covenant, for example, needs to be established maybe meeting by meeting, uh, organization by organization, um, just as an observation. Um, this morning, the, uh, our, our ground rules, um, were presented. Um, they weren't agreed to, um, tacitly perhaps, uh, and, and I say that with love, um, being a, a facilitator and having done that same thing myself. Um, the other thing I love is um, the awareness about sexual education. So much of this, being an ex-lawyer and a Jungian, uh, so much of this has to do with shadow and suppression of healthy, positive sexuality. So. Do you want to respond to any of this, to that comment? Okay. Anyone else want to say anything? Could you come up just a little bit, please? Because I don't think this will go all the way unless I throw it. Okay.
Yeah, I'll just say that that's actually what ended up happening in Portland, and so some of our meetings now do read. Um, that was one of the results of the work that everybody did was to develop a safety statement. Um, I'll give you the backstory on the reaction to that uh, after the meeting. <laughs> Is it Clint? Cliff. Cliff. Um, yeah, I really appreciated both your points there, Cliff. Uh, yeah, th that's actually really exciting because I think it seems in Buddhist circles we're often talking about how not to express sexuality, but we're not actually teaching each other what healthy sexuality looks like. So that's a really exciting prospect. And actually, my uh, my partner's a sexual health educator, so we have these kind of conversations, but for some reason I hadn't imported that into my Buddhist world yet. So that was the, you just caused a little bit of a light bulb moment for me there. So thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and then the other point around, like I think it's great to have structures in place, policies in place. Um, I guess because I've done a lot of my work in kind of um, startups and cutting edge programs and a lot of street-based work, uh, I found a lot of value in um, eliciting what safety looks like from the people that I'm working with, right? So I, I worked in a Housing First program in Vancouver outside of a Buddhist context. I was part of a mental health team and um, we were working with folks who were coming out of homelessness and had homes for the first time in years. And so we brought them together to discuss how that's going and how the adaptation is going. And we just, we just asked them, like, what do you need from each other to be able to share this space in a way that's like safe and helpful? And they came up with all these ideas that were in their own language and that they had a sense of ownership over. And then me and the other facilitator, our job was just to kind of deftly direct them towards these standards that they generated themselves. And they would remind each other too. And so we had this, we had a lot of diversity in terms of uh, gender identity, age, uh, substances of choice, abstinence or harm reduction. And people were able to share the space so uh, skillfully because they had kind of established those standards together. So I think it's great to have structures of accountability, especially for leadership, but I think we also have to be nimble enough to respond to the people that we're actually working with face-to-face -face and maybe to evoke from them what they need. Any other responses to the panelists? Is I have a handout back there on boundaries, um, one side's boundaries, um, just regular boundaries just in generic boundaries, and then there are also um, internal, external, and sexual boundaries. So you can grab that. I mean, for other people that don't know much about boundaries, it'd be a great handout for them to get started. And I'd say for people to also figure out what their boundaries are, what your own boundaries are, and be willing to, like we said today, speak. You, you need to speak up and be comfortable enough with your own boundaries that you speak up and tell a trusted person and also uh, tell the, the, the person that's doing it to please stop, I'm uncomfortable. And I know that's really, really hard. I'm not saying that's e easy. But boundaries is so, so important. And there's a number of really good books out there on boundaries as well. Any other responses or questions for the panelists on this particular question? Okay. Third, we're on the third question, right? Yeah. Okay, just, just checking. How do we as a community respond when people feel unsafe? Who amongst you would like to go first on this one?
for me, because of my background, at, like as a therapist and having done some training in uh, trauma-informed practice, and um, and more recently, I think that there's a more social justice-based model called um, healing-centered engagement that some of you may have, have heard of. Um, I think that you know when I think about addiction, so much of it is rooted in trauma, right? And a lot of the people in the room are there because of experiences of trauma that they've had. And so, um, if somebody feels unsafe, then I think we can draw on some of the knowledge from uh, from trauma-informed practice. So, some of those principles include um, listening, right, to to what the person has to say in a way that's undefended and not trying to fix immediately. Um, affirming and dignifying the person's experience and um, honoring them as agents in the creation of their own well-being ra rather than trying to rescue them. Um, uh, you know, participating together in transforming the roots of the causes of the harm, right? So some of us who are involved in activist work, that's, that's some of the action that we can take around that. Providing support and resources to the person, so really resourcing them up. And it could be peer counseling, it could be therapy, it could be other, other groups. Um, really reinforcing our belief in the person's resiliency and ability to, um, to navigate this. And, um, and then also um, supporting the person, as, as I was talking about this morning, some of us who have the privilege and ability to do so, um, resourcing and supporting the person who's misstepped. Um, and uh, one, one person who's really inspired me in that regard is a therapist from Australia He's a narrative therapist, and uh, narrative therapy is kind of like half of my practice is inspired by narrative therapy, which is a very kind of social justice-based form of psychotherapy. Um, and Alan Jenkins works almost exclusively with uh, men who've harmed women in various ways. And he has this strategy that I've borrowed from him that I find really helpful, which is identifying ways in which men have um, expressed responsibility or taken responsibility and evoking that from them and then building that sense of responsibility to be bigger and more robust uh, with the person. So, um, so I've been able to do that work with some men who have who've transgressed and, uh, and I think that that's, that's an important part of the work as well. So thank you. Um, this is much less deep than that answer, but I, I, I think that one thing that we, we need to do just as a first step is when someone feels unsafe in the community and they're willing to bring that forward, I think, um, the, and this, I, I, I don't want to say this in a trivializing way, but we have to start off by not freaking out. I think there's a tendency to kind of back away from negativity and conflict. And I think when communities are better able to stay with, hey, I feel unsafe, and have a conversation about it, and, you know, bring that to a position of maybe a policy or maybe some kind of cultural change or maybe just awareness in the organizational culture, um, that's very, very important. I think there's a tendency to say, oh no, a, a, a horrible breach has occurred. We all basically have to freak out. And I think normalizing some of that conflict is very important. That's not always the thing to do in the first moment. Sometimes people need to sort of uh, be able to re-regulate and we need to take care of people in a different way. But organizationally moving towards that, I think is very important.
don't know if you're familiar with this teacher, uh, Vinny Ferraro. How many people here have heard of Vinny Ferraro? A few of you, yeah. I think he actually stole from Jack Cornfield something to the effect of be the Buddha, not a Buddhist. And, um, and what I mean in this context, actually, what and certainly what I've seen in a couple of communities where they've had very difficult challenges, relationship, you know, in the safety zone has been that people don't want to be a bad Buddhist. So then they kind of get like, oh, how do I figure this out? And in a loving and kind way, and and uh, I don't want to hurt anybody, you know, I don't want to cause any, you know, they start sort of running through the Buddhist tropes basically. And, you know, meanwhile, something extremely negative is happening that somebody is experiencing while everybody's trying to figure out how to be a Buddhist, you know? So, um, it, so that's, I think, part of it that, you know, even the Dalai Lama says, like, no, you know, like, he's even capable of saying, no, that's not okay. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, you can say no and without dehumanizing the other person. So that's, uh, I think that's just an important piece of it. And then the other important piece for me that I've seen, because I've been pulled into a number of these situations when I was running refuge, um, has been the importance of hearing both perspectives. I mean, we had a situation a couple of years ago within refuge, within a sangha, and, and um, uh, both people, the man and the woman, both were having an experience, and, and it was equally unpleasant for each of them. It was equally uncomfortable for each of them. And, uh, and the man, I think, authentically did not realize that he was causing harm, you know, and the woman felt great harm was being done to her. And so kind of hearing everybody out and then figuring out a plan from there. Does anyone have any comments or questions they'd like to address to the panelists? That first part that you said, Gene, I think is just really needs to be stressed because in in most of our groups, so many pe people are coming into the groups with almost no uh, experience with Buddhism uh, or 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 any kind of practice under their belt. So they hear right speech, and and they just uh, like immediately go, well, uh, I can't say anything because it's going to make somebody uncomfortable, or it's going to, you know, it's going to hurt their feelings or whatever. So, that's the thing I've seen again and again and again. You know, these people, they, 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 without experience, they're misinterpreting the teachings and, and the path, and you know, and and it's and that's what's keeping everybody quiet, and that and that's the the big thing that that we just need to keep screaming at everybody. If you see something, say something. You know, even if you, if if you if you feel something, you know, it's the thing that we we that was the thing early in sobriety that I had to learn again and again to trust my gut. You know, we we're we're cultivating aware, awareness more and more. So if we're feeling something, maybe we don't know the, the 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 details. Maybe we don't know exactly what happened or both sides. But if we're sensing something, fucking say something. That's the second I, I dropped today. <laughs> Before you go, is there anyone who hasn't had a chance to say anything yet or ask, ask a question? 
need to do so. What's that? That's fine. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to even articulate this or like what it is that I've tried to ask, but um, in a lot of this, like someone else has mentioned, is about talking about leadership and um, and s this being such a new, like Buddhist recovery being so new and, and growing, there's so many places where groups are just getting started um, or where the groups are small and not necessarily connected to larger sanghas or leadership within those sanghas um, in, a direct way and how do these things translate I, guess, I think my question is more about like how does something that feels like the thing that's coming up for me is like how does isolation between groups and how does disconnection between groups fuel um, these sorts of problems and what are the ways that we can work inter sangali or whatever the work is like in between these different communities and use a lot of the tools that we have for individual practice to work with the groups in the areas or work with between different sanghas in different areas to see what's working and help that translate to groups that may not have that leadership easily accessible. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely on the the um, on the refuge website, and we're going to do the same thing for the recovery dharma website. We're going to post community resources that have been built by community members. And so that people can go to the resources tab of our website and see what what various communities have tried. So like give examples of safety statements that communities have built, you know, and uh, like how we addressed uh, sexual misconduct in Portland and, you know, other examples like that so that we can serve as a resource bank for individual sanghas because i mean portland we're fortunate you know like there's so many groups right and we get together and like it's like thanksgiving dinner you know with your uncle you know and um for all the good and the bad of that and uh uh but you know i mean we got groups that are like like salinas california like there's like charlie's down there with i don't know three other people right and so he's not necessarily getting that influx of incoming that you know the material right so that's why we want to make sure that the that there's a huge resource bank on our website for everybody which you are free to visit either of you want to say anything yeah I, I think there are going to be emerging resources for sanghas and really that's uh, I mean that's what Amara wants to do is we want to create the forums we want to create the conversations we want to find the best practices and, and find a way to share them. That's really important to us. We don't, if we limit our work to the big centers in the big, uh, in the big, you know, Boulder, Portland, you know, the, the big Buddhist cities, we're really gonna miss some of our important impact. The other thing I wanna say, I think is that communities, part of having this conversation about ethical conduct and ethical misconduct is that communities need to, um, move that work more to the fore of what they're doing. So they're, if, you're, if you're at the point where you're ready to spin out 
Well, let me say it a different way. Maybe you're not at the point where you're ready to spin out a lot of local sanghas if you don't have a web page that lets the people running those local sanghas know about your ethical standards and ethical conduct in your community. So, I know that's a tall order, but. Okay, you had one more quick question I think you want or something. Please do. Um, I think it's really helpful to have a, uh, a statement that's a public statement that's probably even read at every meeting that sets out what safety is and what happens if someone doesn't feel safe. Um, in sexual harassment uh, in the workplace and so on, it's very, very difficult, I understand, to, to um, get something that's effective because um, people who are harassed don't want to report it. They don't want to go through the process. They don't believe in it. But if, but what I'm thinking is if, if there's a statement that this is what safety is, this is what we're committed to, if you feel unsafe, then come and talk to the leader. The leaders have to be trained. Um, but I think that this also would help deter um, predators who might be in the group because they know this is how it's going to get dealt with. If somebody's feeling unsafe because of what you're doing, this is how we're going to deal with it. I, I think a community that has good policies, that has a culture that makes it clear that they follow through on those policies, and that um, uh, doesn't have a lot of um, obscure hierarchies and family secrets, uh, I think a community like that is going to repel predators. It's going to repel, you know, uh, people with narcissistic personality disorder. So, because they know that they're not going to get what they want out of that community. Very short. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, um, and remember, you know, people that are coming in from addictions and have family of origin issues. Um, they're going to be more vulnerable than people that don't, and almost everybody does because it's all trauma-based. So it's, you know, to remember that, that we have to, you know, remember how vulnerable they are from their background. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be releasing the second part of the talk next week. Um, the second part goes over the small group discussions that we broke into after this panel. Um, and in the small group discussions, we discussed topics uh, around creating safer spaces in the Buddhist recovery community. And then we, we recorded... Um, yeah, what people record, reported back, what the community at the summit reported back um, in response to these questions about creating safer spaces. So tune in next week for that. And then, yeah, in the following weeks after that, we have more panels to share from the summit. So, yeah, keep coming back. Uh, yeah, may we all find tools and wisdom that keep inspiring our recovery and share those tools and practices with our communities. Bye, everyone. <laughs>